My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. to defend the government and the minister and called them and said, you know, somebody's made a terrible mistake here. You guys should correct this right away. And I was met with such arrogance and deceit and ignorance of the history and a lack of respect for the environmental and ecological values of the place that I, I just said, I just, I can't take this. I can't let this go That's by. That's the voice of Christopher Trider. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Trider lives in Nova Scotia. He is a landscape architect and used to work as a provincial civil servant involved in the planning of provincial parks. He is also a member of a grassroots group called Save Owl's Head Provincial Park which is doing its best to intervene in the fate of a small piece of land on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia next to the town of Little Harbor. Though not yet a fully-fledged provincial park, this particular piece of land, which is among the relatively small proportion of Nova Scotia coast left in public hands, has been part of various proposals, plans, and designations for conservation for at least the last 45 years. Most recently, it was identified in the province's 2013 Our Parks and Protected Areas Plan, which was developed through extensive consultation with residents, environmental groups, the private sector, and the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq Chiefs. Owl's Head is a rugged and largely undisturbed coastal headland, characterized by rock ridges, bogs, and barrens. While somewhat spartan in appearance, the land is home to considerable biodiversity, this includes a globally rare plant community, which features broom crowberry, bird habitat for at least 75 species, including for the endangered piping plover, and rich eelgrass and rockweed beds offshore. In December 2019, the CBC reported that in the wake of years of lobbying by a U.S.-based property developer, the provincial government had quietly, with no public consultation or notification, removed the designation from Owl's Head and signed a letter of offer to sell it. The developer wants to build up to three luxury golf courses on the property. Save Owl's Head Provincial Park started off as a Facebook group created by Sydney McKay in response to that CBC story. She grew up in Little Harbor and still lives nearby, and for years she had watched with concern as that very same developer had bought up local properties. As for Trider, he got involved because his past employment meant he was well aware of what the process around protected land was supposed to look like, and he was infuriated by how the government had quote-unquote crossed the line in this case. He said, quote, it just, you know, smelled so bad, end quote. The group's early activities involved a lot of learning and a lot of sharing of information. Proponents of the development circulated what Trider describes as quote-unquote misinformation that contributed to sharp divisions among local residents, and the group worked hard to counter that. They built a website and a strong social media presence. Individuals and small groups of members engaged in all manner of creative action to lobby, advocate, and spread the word. They developed relationships with local, provincial, and national environmental organizations, which spoke out in support. They ran email campaigns and other online efforts to pressure politicians, and distributed signs and stickers for people to show their support. 
They also did their best to build relationships with both Mi'kmaq governments and grassroots people. In 2020, biologist Bob Bancroft and the Eastern Shore Forest Watch Association launched a court challenge to the delisting. A judicial decision released in the summer of 2021 indicated that while aspects of the government's conduct were troubling, it would not block the deal because the decision to delist and sell the property was fundamentally within the government's power. It encouraged Nova Scotians opposed to the sale to seek a political solution. And indeed, many members of Save Owls Head Provincial Park were very active in raising the issue during this summer's provincial election campaign in Nova Scotia. Though it can't be attributed solely to this issue, both the Liberal government and the local Liberal MLA who had so strongly supported the development went down to defeat. The new Conservative government of Premier Tim Houston has not yet said what action it will take on the issue. Trider said that his group is giving the new government some breathing room to review the facts of the issue. But, he said, quote, if they side with the developer and with this deal, and they do not at the very least have some kind of independent, transparent review of this proposal, then we will be back in the streets, end quote. I speak with Trider about Owl's Head Provincial Park and about the effort to save it. My name is Chris Trider, and I am a landscape architect with a history in park planning. I worked 21 years as a park planner. In a CBC article back in December 2019, we discovered that a provincial park property known as Owl's Head Provincial Park was the subject of a letter of offer by the guy of the day to sell to a private developer. And that it was basically what we refer to as a backroom deal that had been put together between some connected lobbyists and the government of the day to sell a beautiful 267-hectare coastal property with over five miles of coastline for a song, you know, $216,000 or something like that. So it led to the formation of a group called Save Owls Head Provincial Park, Little Harbor, from becoming golf courses because that was the proposal the developer had submitted that he was going to try to develop three championship golf courses and some luxury real estate on this Owls Head property that had been part of a national park candidate at one time and had been part of the protected areas plan and part of a local park system concept known as the Eastern Shore Seaside Park System since 1975. So it had over 40 years of protection and all of a sudden the government decided they could concoct a secret deal to sell it. And we've been fighting it for the last, well, it'll be two years in December. I used to be a golf course superintendent at one time in an early career, and then I went with the Parks Division. I had done some studying overseas in coastal landforms and coastal geomorphology, and that had led me to be a provincial beach expert. I left government not on really good terms, I would say, because I I didn't like the direction that the parks program in the province was going, and I went into the private sector, and I have a history in mining and trying to develop a marble industry in Nova Scotia. In particular, the park planning and landscape architecture and the golf course experience qualified me to react the way I did when I saw this proposal. You know, as a landscape architect, you're sort of in the philosophy of being a steward of the land. In my time in government, I had seen some attempts to sort of circumvent policies and procedures. Fortunately, the ones I had seen were blocked and prevented, but in this case, I felt they really crossed a line for me. 
you know, I have a good life. I'm involved in a couple of private companies and I live in the woods with my three dogs. And it took a lot for me to jump into this and really get intensely involved in this process. But this one crossed the line. It just, you know, smelled so bad. I actually tried to defend the government and the minister and called them and said, you know, somebody's made a terrible mistake here. You guys should correct this right away. And I was met with such arrogance and deceit and ignorance of the history and a lack of respect for the environmental and ecological values of the place that I, I just said, I just, I can't take this. I can't let this go by. There were a lot of other people that felt the same way, and this group was formed by a resident of the area and then evolved into a group of over 10,000 members, very determined to prevent this from happening. Tell listeners more about the land. Where is it? What's it like? That kind of thing. Al's Head is on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia. It's about an hour and 15 minutes, probably, from the metropolitan Halifax area along the eastern shore. It's a really rugged, undisturbed coastal headland defined by a whole series of parallel rock ridges and bogs and barrens. And it had been isolated and only had very limited public access. It was an undisturbed area with beautiful views of the offshore islands. So you have gorgeous coastal views, but this really intense, rugged, uh, parallel rock ridge topography with these bogs and barrens and all of the different species of flora and fauna that go with that. They've documented over 80 species of birds either nesting or migrating through there. The flora, there's a globally rare plant community there, broom crowberry plant community that had been documented by St. Mary's researchers. You can easily see where this has a flora that's evolved relatively undisturbed for over 10,000 years because since the retreat of the Ice Age, there's been very little disturbance. So these really intricate and complex plant communities have evolved there. The shoreline, because of the orientation of the property, has frontage on, I think, seven different bodies of water. There's a freshwater lake, there's coves and inlets and harbors and On that marine interface, there are beautiful, large eelgrass heads, the the nurseries of the sea. These are the areas where species of fish and shellfish nest, and, you know, it just provides a secure environment for them. So they're very important biologically, ecologically speaking, and very vulnerable to disturbance from development. And the type of development that was proposed there, they wanted to build three championship golf courses. Well, there's no soil there. There's these deep peat, sphagnum, like mossy layers that have developed between the rock ridges that support this coastal flora. Very acidic, very low pH. I mean, I don't think you could pick a worse place to build golf courses. But at the same time, when you're standing there, these rock ridges rise up in elevation from the sea. So when you're on the higher ridges, you have these beautiful panoramic views of the nearshore islands. And it's a very beautiful area, but it's also interconnected to inland wilderness areas along the waterways adjacent to it. It was a natural environment park component of this park system that included destination camping and wilderness access and access to these offshore islands. So it's not only on its own a very unique and amazing large 
park property. It's also part of an interconnected whole here that had been designed and approved by the communities. There's only one other geologically referenced similar location in Nova Scotia. So on a lot of levels, it has a lot to offer the people. How did the campaign to save Owl's Head Provincial Park get started? The Save Owl's Head group was started by Sydney McKay, who was a local, and she had seen over the years this wealthy American investment banker type guy had come in there and bought a piece of the land adjacent to the park and had started up buying all the homes and properties in Little Harbor. So she had this existing level of concern about what was going on there. So when this proposal came in, she knew the area very well that this proposal would destroy it. She started the Facebook group. So there was sort of a coming together of people who were reacting to the CBC story and, you know, the information that had come out through the Freedom of Information request that led to the founding members of the group. And then we just started posting as much information about the place that we could find. As the group grew and our knowledge grew, it spread into the broader community, the provincial and the national and even the international community started taking notice and taking an interest. The other thing that happened was deliberate misinformation tactics were used. Uh, He means by the supporters of the development. And a strategy of devaluing the property, you know, referring to it as just empty land and a wasteland and barrens and why don't we do something with this? And really a failure to recognize the ecological significance of the site, but also to promote a division in the community. The community became very divided over this because it was portrayed as economy versus environment. Another thing they did, which was really quite outrageous, they started trying to sanitize government websites of any references to the property as Owl's Head Provincial Park. And they tried to just start calling it by property information numbers. So we thought, well, well, you know what, this is kind of like Donald Trump style tactics, you know, sanitize the information and lie about its history. What kinds of actions has the group taken? We were involved in a lot of like letters to the editor. We got involved with an email campaign. We had a large number of allies step forward and join in our cause. The Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, CPAWS, Ecology Action Centre, which is the local ecology activist organization, and the World Wildlife Fund. We had a lot of prominent local people with strong environmental credentials who wrote letters of support and reports. We set up a fabulous website, saveowlshead.org, that really provided people with a lot of solid information and photographs and helped them to get an understanding of the place without actually having to travel there and visit there themselves. So the website, the Facebook group, Twitter, Instagram. We try to use all the social media platforms to respond to every bit of information that we saw that supported the golf course development and the destruction of the place. We tried to counter those arguments. The growth of the group was, I would say, very organic. The administrators tried their best to moderate, to take the high road and, you know, keep it on the science of the place, the beauty of the place, the history of the place, and its significance to all Nova Scotians. 
because they had this fairly well orchestrated local campaign by the local MLA that, you know, they had submitted a petition to the province. And, you know, there was a definite strategy at work there that we had to fight against. And as we went along, we developed, and we are still developing, a growing relationship with the First Nations, with the Mi'kmaq Nation, and encouraging their involvement because they have a legal right to reject this type of sale. You know, it's been affirmed by the courts. There's every reason to believe that this is a very strong cultural heritage site, particularly back to the archaic period, thousands of years of occupation that had been lost by rising sea levels. But everything about this site and the little bit of local archaeology that had been done has confirmed the presence of these early people. So we also have been working hard to build a relationship with the Mi'kmaq Nation and have them as allies in our fight. So we have strong allies. We have a strong membership, a broad base across the province. We tried to make sure that everybody knew that this was a project that concerned all Nova Scotians. This isn't just a local land use issue. This was one park of 200 other properties in the protected areas plan that had the same legal status that would be vulnerable to this type of a backroom deal. So we kept bringing up the fact that this was a terrible precedent that, you know, any developer who lived next to an undesignated park property would have a willing ear with this government. Without getting into too many of the procedural ins and outs, what have the official processes like the the government and court processes been around the site? The government's process was revealed to us in the freedom of information requests from the CBC and also in the court documents. So it appears what happened is this developer had several lobbyists who worked on his behalf to make his connections within government to facilitate his plans to acquire the park property. And the government of the day and the minister agreed apparently with his approach In my opinion, we don't know for sure because the internal reports have been redacted and hidden from view. But probably, given my experience in government for many, many years in this type of process, they likely ignored the recommendations of their own professional staff who would have seen the problems with this process. So it had a number of different stages. First thing they did was they removed it from the 2013 Parks and Protected Areas Plan. That plan had a very strong background in public consultations and consultations with the Mi'kmaq. And then they crafted in consultation with the developer and his legal people this letter of offer to sell. And they accepted this appraisal that was based on that the property was essentially undevelopable for the purpose it was intended. So, you know, they they $306 an acre for this coastal property, which is ludicrous considering the prices that coastal properties in Nova Scotia are going for. So they had done all this, removed it from the plan and signed the letter of offer to sell it in secrecy without public consultation. So that was at the heart of the court 
challenge that this violated procedural fairness and was a violation of the public interest because there was a clear and definable public interest in this land from its designation back in the 70s as a component of the Eastern Shore Seaside Park System and its addition as Site 694 in the Parks and Protected Areas Plan. So the lawyer for the Eastern Shore Group and Bob Bancroft requested a judicial review. They wanted a justice to review this process and determine if it should be rejected. And essentially, the judge basically said, go to the polling booth and settle this in the democratic election process. Because from her perspective, what had been done had been done legally, like that she felt that it was in the power of cabinet to make this kind of decision. It was within their power. It was legal. Morally and ethically, she had some fairly interesting comments in that regard, but at the same time, she couldn't find it to be illegal, essentially. And I mean, we made it uh, part of the political landscape when during the election, I mean, we held a large rally in Halifax that was well attended and got great media coverage. We have a sign and a sticker decals campaign that we have signs up all over Nova Scotia. Those were up during the election and people went out of their way to, you know, there's one woman, Cassandra Francis, who took her signs and her children and went out and walked around the city and tried to educate and inform people. We got another guy, Ian Guppy, who had a huge sign in his truck that he drove around and parked outside Ian Rankin's campaign headquarters. And, you know, I mean, just individuals, people who I'm sure had many of them, probably most of them, had never been involved in this kind of activism before. And it's a long list. I've only mentioned a couple of names there, but there's a, a lot of people who have worked quietly and individually trying to keep this issue front and center. You mentioned that you've been building relationships with Mi'kmaq communities around this issue. What has that involved and where is that process at? We started by providing the Mi'kmaq land rights people with the information that we had on the site and sort of asking for their help and support. But those negotiations are government to government, so we're not really sure what effect that we've had. But there was a very prominent activist and grandmother, Elizabeth Marshall, who got involved in the issue and has been very vocal and very prominent in her support. And then there's another group, Doreen, Bernard, and the Waterkeepers, who are actively involved and want to protect this place. So we've been fostering these relationships as we went along and, you know, trying to establish the cultural heritage significance of the site, in addition to its natural and ecological importance, you know, that it has this potential that should be determined before it's destroyed. Here's this landscape that goes back thousands of years and was probably a prominent cultural site because the archaic peoples were coastal dwellers. Most of the artifactual evidence of their occupations have been lost to rising sea levels in Nova Scotia, but everything about this landscape and, as I've said, the existing few digs that have been done in the area confirm that there has been a long history of occupation here. So we wanted them to have knowledge of that and to be involved with us in this process, in this fight. And they have done, you know, ceremonies and blessings on the site. And a lot of Mi'kmaq people have joined our group and our members. So we've really tried to foster and grow that alliance every way we can think of. 
So in the wake of this summer's provincial election in Nova Scotia, there is, of course, a new provincial government. What's your sense of where the Owl's Head issue stands with this new government? What's your group planning to do? And what are you asking supporters to do at this point? We ask supporters, first of all, to give the new government a chance to organize itself and not inundate it and confront it. So we want this new government to see this as an opportunity to demonstrate environmental stewardship and a commitment to the environment and also to differentiate themselves from the previous government. Now, the new government is a conservative government, so there's a strong, I would say, current of suspicion and mistrust of the party, conservative party on environmental matters. So we've tried to, I guess, neutralize that and say, let's give these guys a chance to organize and take a position and let's provide them with a presentation which we're working on and we expect to give to the new MLA shortly to take to the premier. We did have a Zoom call meeting with the new premier and the new MLA before they were elected where we went over all of the problems and issues. And at the time, Tim Houston, the new premier, he said he would definitely pause this process and take a hard look and determine the facts of the matter, which the new minister responsible has said that's what he's doing now. He's accumulating and acquiring the details of what went on. And so we expect them to do the right thing. We expect them to reverse this letter of offer, to throw it out, basically. And we expect them to proceed with the formal designation of this property as a park. That's what we're pressing them on. And we haven't uh, what's the expression I could use here? We haven't really put the dogs on them yet because, you know, they've just named their cabinet and they're just getting organized. We don't know at this point what position they're going to take. Are they going to side with the developer? Whatever decision they make in the short term is going to determine the reaction that the group takes. So if they side with the developer and with this deal and they do not at the very least, have some kind of independent, transparent review of this proposal, then we will be back in the streets, I guess, would be the way to put it. You know, it's 2021, and this mentality that is behind this sort of deal has to die. It has to go away. We know too much now about climate change and biodiversity and the importance of habitats and the interconnectedness between land and water. And, you know, the pandemic showed us the importance of natural areas and being able to get out into nature for all people, not just the 1%, not just the wealthy that can fly in and play around a golf this is public land, and we have to be aware that over 85% of Nova Scotia's shoreline is gone. It's privately owned. It's being developed in an unregulated manner. And so the value system that we employ has to properly value these lands for us, for our children, for our grandchildren, for the seven generations, and for all the people of the world, because these are critically important areas. You have been listening to my interview with Christopher Trider of Save Owlshead Provincial Park. To learn more about the group, go to saveowlshead.org. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.